Well, hi, everyone. Let me join Melissa's welcome. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And tonight we are going to talk about resentments and character defects. And if we get to it, fear. Um, obviously, all the steps are really important. But to me, this part about resentment is really crucial because it says if we harbor resentments, we're shut off from the sunlight of the spirit. And I mean, those are just beautiful words, right? To just think about it. It's like the sunlight of the spirit. That's what keeps me abstinent. That's what keeps me um, healthy. And I don't want to be shut off from that. I don't want a door slammed between me and my creator. And they're telling us that that's what unresolved resentments and character defects that I keep indulging in do. So let's get to work. Um, bottom of page 63. It says, next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. Well, they're saying next. So that means something had to go before it. And I think that's really important because if we don't have the foundation and we just launch into resolving our resentments and resolving our fears, we're just doing like self-therapy and that doesn't work. So we need our foundation. We needed to have admitted that we are powerless over food, alcohol, whatever our addiction is. We come to believe that God can restore us to sanity, God as we understand him. And then in the third step, we surrender. We make a decision to give our will and our lives over to God, which basically means, God, I'm going to give you my food, my marriage, my job, my kids, everything. I'll try and do what I think you would have me, and I'll trust you with the results, hands off. So great, we've surrendered to God. And then they're saying, well, we don't just go about our merry business. We've done a lot of damage in the past, and we need to clean it up. So they say, first step is a personal house cleaning. And on page 64, they say, though our decision, our decision to surrender to God was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Okay, that's a whole lot there. But what I see is so great. It says, if we basically, if we don't do the inventory to clean up our past, our decision to surrender to God could have little permanent effect. Guys, recovery can be permanent. They are telling us if we do this work, we never have to pick up again. So, but what does it take? A strenuous effort to do what? To face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor, our food was but a symptom. You know, so often people say, the food is what blocks me from God. And what they're saying here is that our character defects, our resentments and our fears are what's blocking us. And that food, compulsive eating, is a symptom of being blocked. So it's not like, oh, I'm in the food that, and that blocks me off from God. No, we got to go back further. If I'm in the food, it's a sure sign that I'm already blocked off from God. Okay, so how do we get blocked? Our character defects, 
our resentments, our fears, and our harms to others. So that's what we're going about to clean up. Um, again, our liquor, our food was but a symptom that there's something wrong with me spiritually. So we have to get down to causes and conditions. And they say, here's the point. Just like if you own a business, you take a regular inventory so you can get rid of the stuff that doesn't work. Um, and it says, if the owner of a business is to be successful, he can't fool himself about values. We can't think we're better than we are. There's two mistakes people often make when it comes to our character defects. And one is making excuses for them. Well, if you had the parents that I had, you would do this too. If you had the kids that I had, you would, my daughter's sitting right here, you would do this too. Um, so we can't do that. We can't give excuses like, yes, I was unkind, but mm -mm, I was unkind. The other side of the bed that we tend to fall off on, and they talk about this in a couple pages, is remorse, being overly remorseful. It's as if, if I beat myself up enough, then that'll atone for it. And what that's really doing is that's like dissing God. Like that's saying God won't forgive me just by me admitting it and being willing to change. So we don't want to fall off the bed on the side of making excuses for what we've done wrong. And we don't want to fall off the side of the bed of being overly remorseful. Like, yeah, God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. So two things we want to watch out for. So tells us, okay, first thing we do is we consider the different manifestations of self. So lots of ways to do a fourth step. If you talk to a bunch of people, you may hear a bunch of ways to doing it, unless, of course, they were all sponsored by the same sponsor. Um, I'm just giving you one way. I'm not saying it's the only way. Um, so the manifestations of self. I give my sponsees a defect list, and you can find it on our website under other resources. And it lists a bunch of defects. I basically took the ones that I had, so there were plenty. Um, and then I tell my sponsees, look up the definition, look up the opposite, and then give an example of the defect. And an example that has teeth. So if the defect is stealing and you took a piece of bubble gum when you were a third grader and you robbed a bank last week, you're going to put the bank robbery as your example. Okay, so we're going to just have our defects. And then it tells us, page 64, resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics. Look at that word, destroys us. Our anger at other people has the power to destroy us. And it says from that stem all sorts of spiritual disease, of course, like vengefulness, you know, spitefulness, retaliation, justification, all sorts of things. Um, and then they say, okay, you know, you have, by now you have a food plan, probably been abstinent a while, you have a little more peace of mind. And it says, but we're going to warn you, you haven't been just mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. And then it tells us the order of recovery. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So it's not like... um 
I have, you know, when I first started, I believe I was told I had to be absent for like 30 days before I could do a certain steps or something. And that's nowhere in the big book. I had to do the steps so that I could get abstinent. So the order we recover is spiritual, then mental and physical. And now we'll get down to brass tacks. How do we do it? It says, okay, we have our resentments. We put them on paper or these days on an Excel spreadsheet. Um, we write who we resent, column one, why, column two, and just short and sweet, just like Bill Wilson said, Mr. Brown, his attention to my wife, just short and sweet. Um, and then we asked ourselves why we were angry, what defects, not, not defects, but what part of our self was affected. So it says self-esteem. So that's kind of like what I think about myself. So someone says to me, oh, you're stupid, you're ugly, you know, you have no right to breathe oxygen on this planet. I may say, oh yeah, like, gosh, maybe I'm really like pathetic. That would have, and I get mad at the person for saying that. It's because it affected my self-esteem. Um, my pocketbook, right? If someone threatens my job, my ambition. Now that could be my career ambition, right? I want to move up. I want my boss to think I'm, you know, a superstar. But it could just be my ambition for things to go a certain way. Like, my kids don't listen to me. What does it affect? My ambition, you know, why? Because I want them to listen so that parenting will be easy peasy. I found that most, if not all of my resentments affected my ambition. People weren't doing what I wanted. Um, our personal relationships. So it's like if you told Melissa, like, oh, Janet's an idiot, you shouldn't hang out with her. And Melissa agreed which she never would, um, you would have affected my personal relationships. And my sex relationship, you know, if you're flirting with my husband, I might get angry because, you know, my sex relations. And the other one that's not on this list here, but they use it in the example, is our security, like our emotional security. So that would be if... Um, Let's say a mom has a kid and feels like the kid doesn't love her and is angry at that kid for not loving her. It's because it affects her emotional security. She doesn't feel like her place in the world is secure if her kids don't love her. So that's what we do. We write down who we resent, why, what it affects. And bottom of 65, it tells us, then we go back through our lives. And the first thing a parent is, yeah, other people are often wrong, right? If someone's flirting with my husband, that's not very nice, right? They shouldn't do that. They're wrong. And they say, okay. So the usual out to conclude others were wrong was as far as most of us got. And what happened? People continued to wrong us and we stayed sore or we were angry at ourselves. And they say, we can't stop there. So they say, it's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads to futility and unhappiness. And then they give a for formula for us and mostly for normal people. To the precise extent we allow anger, do we squander the hours which may have been worthwhile? So if I'm angry a thousand hours in my lifetime, it's like I've thrown 
the gift from God of a thousand hours down the drain. So they say, but with the alcoholic or the compulsive eater, right? So we're, we have to work a little harder at it. Whose hope, whose only hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience. What's that? God coming in and rewiring our hearts to make us more like him to make our priorities more like his priorities. That is my only hope because if my soul soil is um, filled with the stuff of God, the illness of compulsive eating can't grow there. It's like, I'm sure roses can only grow in a certain soil and weeds only grow in a certain place. I got to get rid of the soil that that allows weeds to grow and have the soul soil that only grows like spiritual flowers so and it says what happens um it's fatal if we have resentment it says when harboring such feelings now we're always going to get resentments we're human beings but we don't want to be a safe harbor for them right if you think of a harbor that's where ships come in when there's bad weather and they stay there we don't want to be a harbor for resentment Why? Because then we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. We're basically saying, I'd rather be right than have God. And they say, that's dangerous. And they say, okay. So now we realize that it's like, okay, I want to be rid of resentments. And they say, yeah, don't think you can just wish them away. And it really isn't just like we say a prayer, God remove the resentments. And that's it. That's not the solution the big book tells us to take. Um, But after we do our column three, who we resent, why, what it affects, we pray, but we don't stop there. But we don't want to leave it out because, again, if we leave out prayer and God, we're doing self-therapy and that doesn't work. So we pray. It says, this was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. A word on that line, because I think it's one of the most misused and misinterpreted lines in the book. Um, So often people will do their inventory and they say, what's my part? I didn't pray for that poor sick person down in the valley up from my exalted position on a mountaintop. We have to be really careful when we're saying they're spiritually sick, I'm fine. So here's some ways around it. Um, They're spiritually developing just like me. They're fellow humans, just like me. There are times when it's probably okay to use it. I guess I would say if someone has a resentment against Hitler, we could in safety say, um, here's someone who was spiritually sick. Um, But for the most part, our relatives who just aren't doing what we want or listening to us or, you know, living lives that we think are right and inviting people to their weddings who we don't want to go because we don't want to see them. um, We don't want to use that term spiritually sick too often. So I use generally spiritually developing or my sponsor says human, just like me. And then we pray. What do we pray for? We ask God to help us. So I'm asking for God to change me. Help me show them tolerance. It says pity and patience. And someone said that the word pity is like 
different than the meaning was when this book was written and to substitute compassion. So tolerance, what does that mean? My threshold to withstand pain or sorrow is raised. So when I'm asking to be able to show people tolerance, I'm asking God to change me so that things won't bother me so much. It's like if someone flirted with my husband, I wouldn't get a resentment because I'm secure that my husband loves me. And I would just have tolerance and like feel bad for someone who's like flirting with a married man who's married to like a kick-ass, wonderful woman. Like, why would they bother? Um, So tolerance, compassion, right? If people are doing things that aren't so nice, it's sometimes good to think of their history. Um, When I was younger, not even younger, but, you know, in early recovery, I was angry at my dad because he worked a lot and he yelled a lot. And then I remembered that his father was an alcoholic who didn't work, didn't, you know, didn't always work. So in God's eyes, my dad may be a hero. And just having compassion, he never had anyone model to him, you know, how to raise children well. Um, So I prefer to look at it that God thinks my dad is a hero. And patience. You know, God still is doing a lot of work on me. Um, I didn't go from horrible to barely passable in the blink of an eye. Sometimes it takes a long time for people to get to where we think they should be. So patience. And it says, when a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a spiritually developing person just like me. How can I be helpful? God, save me from being angry. I need to be rescued from my anger the same way I needed to be rescued from food. Thy will be done. And it says, we don't retaliate, we don't argue, um, because we destroy our chance of being helpful. I mean, can you imagine what this book is telling us? Not only do we have to forgive, we have to look and see if we can be helpful to that woman who's flirting with my husband, you know, to the people who are trying to undermine us at work. We look to be helpful. Um, And it says, okay, we can't always be helpful to everyone. That's an impossible task. But the bare minimum, God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. So just when I did my fifth step with my sponsor, went through it. And by then, most of my resentments were gone, but not all of them. So she told me to, you know, put an asterisk by the ones that I still resented and keep praying until the resentment was gone to dissolve it in like a bath of prayer. And that's what we do. Okay, so once we pray, we pick up our list again, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. And it says, where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? So this is our column four. Now, I know a way a lot of people do it is they go through all those four words for each and every resentment. Where was I selfish? Where was I dishonest? Where was I self-seeking? Where was I frightened for every resentment? 
And I've had people say to me, what's the difference between selfish and self-seeking? And my answer is, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. God knows my heart. So the way I was taught and the way that I, you know, tell my sponsees is take one sentence to say what your part is. So for instance, if I'm angry that um, my husband keeps the keeps the air conditioning on and it's too cold, you know, too cold at night. So it'd be, I resent my husband. Why? He keeps the room too cold at night. What it affects? My ambition to get a good night's sleep. I pray. I don't sit there and say, God help my, my sick husband. You know, I say, he's a fellow human being like me. And then I look at my part. So my part may be, I never told him that I think it's too cold in here. And then my column five is my character defect. What character defect was that? Now, it may be different for different people. It may be, um, it may be fear, fear that I'll tell my husband and he'll smack me, right? That may be someone's, re- not my husband, but that may be someone's reason. Or their reason for not telling their husband may be um, people-pleasing, right? Or um, which is really a form of manipulation. I won't say anything to upset the apple cart so that my husband will love me more. That's manipulation. So again, I always say like, let's find the one thing that's your part. And we know it because when we say it, it's like, yes, that's it. And there's like a little bit of a sting. I mean, sometimes, like I say, if sometimes it just doesn't work where have we been selfish dishonest self-seeking frightened if someone's flirting with my husband i say you know and i'm angry at it because you know then i say okay where is i dishonest well i'm not dishonest someone is flirting with my husband and i have to kind of try and stretch it to make it fit so i just look to see you know what's my part and and that one my part would be i think people should always act in ways that live up to my values so that I'll be happier. And then what's my defect there? Controlling. People can act however they want. It's my job to be secure enough in myself, in my so that if someone says to me, you know, you're a horrible person, I can look and say, hmm, did I do anything wrong? And if I did fix it, and if not, I can just write it off. Um, So again, we look and we just see what's my part? Where did I set the ball rolling? Often it's in our thinking, right? I think this person should do things the way I want so that my life will be easier. And my column five is full of the defect of entitlement and controlling. Okay, so we do this inventory and it says we admit our wrongs honestly. It's okay, it's okay to, to be wrong. I had a resentment at one time against my mom. This was before she had Alzheimer's because she wanted me to spend you know more time with her than I wanted to spend with her. And I like was angry at that. I was always nice to her. She never would have known. And then I thought, well, what's my part? And my sponsors, you know, she's she would just like throw things out until something stuck. And the one she threw out was um, 
I think I shouldn't have to do things I don't want to do. I'm like, that's it. And then what are my defects? Like that is so self-centered. I should only live my life doing what I want. Um, And so we do that. We're honest. And I was honest enough to admit that. Yeah, I really didn't want to spend time with my mother. Um, But as an aside, something amazing happened when I went to God and I just said like, there's something wrong with my heart. I need you to please change my heart um, toward my mom. And he did. And I felt this like love for her that I hadn't before. And one week later, I was told she had Alzheimer's. So thank God for this program. Um, Okay, so we finish our resentments and then we do our fears. Page 67, one of my favorite paragraphs in the book. It says, Notice the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and this wife. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Okay, there is a lot there. But first it says, fear is evil. Well, I thought fear was an emotion. Emotions aren't evil, like I'm sad, I'm happy. No one would say that's evil. But they're saying fear is evil. Because I think what they're saying is it's more than an emotion. It's it's the opposite of faith. It's really faith that something bad is going to happen. And it says it sets in motion like, bad circumstances. Well, how could it? Well, if we think of our second step, step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Our belief that God can restore us to sanity actually sets things in motion. It's like God saying, okay, she believes that I can help her. Okay, angels, let's get to work. Get on your little hard hats and carpenter belts and let's start the renovation job in her heart. The belief is actually a catalyst for positive change in our lives. Fear is like an anti-second step. It's belief that God's not going to be involved. And then when we believe that, he really isn't. Our book describes the illness as cunning, baffling, and powerful. If our faith isn't in God, then the illness has a bit of a free reign is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and will bring us misfortune we feel we didn't deserve. But maybe by not turning to God and surrendering to God, I'm really bringing on, on myself. It's like I talk about, you know, we're if we're um, a serf on the land of a benevolent king, as long as I stay on the king's land, I'm safe from the attacking armies. But if I wander off, not that the king stops loving me, I've left, I'm no longer protected. So we can have fear. Um, And it tells us, we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Like, and I think class with stealing, where, where would you put stealing? Like, where's that class? And I always think of like, well, the 10 commandments, right? Thou shalt not steal. I'm thinking, huh, you'd put fear on that list and say it's like worse than theft. Um, and causes more trouble. 
And then I think, yeah, it really is in the same category because one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And if I'm in fear, that means I'm not trusting that God's going to see me through whatever the situation is. So yeah, more trouble than stealing. And then it tells us what to do about it. We review our fears thoroughly. We ask ourselves why we have them. Was it, was it because self-reliance failed us? So some people, it's like, here's my fear. Did self-reliance fail me? Check yes or no. Well, it's always yes, right? Um, but what I heard someone do once that really helped me was to drill down. We asked ourselves why we had them. So here's an example of um, one I had. Fear when my daughter was 16 that if I disciplined her, then when she became 18, she would never want to talk to me again. And then I drilled down. If th that happens, then what? Then um, I will be all alone for holidays. Then what? Then I will be sad. Okay, drill down until it generally gets to I'll be sad or I'll be uncomfortable. And then I look for the dishonest thinking. What's the dishonest thinking there? Well, there's a whole bunch. One is that disciplining kids appropriately leads to them not wanting to talk to you once they turn 18. Um, another part of dishonesty in there was if my daughter doesn't invite me for Thanksgiving, I'll be alone. How do I know? You know, someone else may invite me. And then the other dishonesty is if I'm alone, I'll be sad. No, not necessarily true. If I've if I'm keeping company with God, I'm not going to be sad. So see all the dishonesty that can be wrapped up in our fear. And then it says, what do we do? There's a better way. And they give us this gorgeous formula on page 68. We are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. And here's the formula. Just to the extent, so you can put an equal sign there on one and on one side that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him equals the amount of serenity we have, even in calamity. So it's like A units of doing what I think God would have me plus B units of humbly relying on him equals A, B units of serenity. So what they're telling me is that my serenity isn't dependent on the calamity that may or may not be around me. It's dependent upon, am I doing what I think God would have me? And am I humbly relying on him? And then they tell us, okay, um, we let God demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be or what he would have us do. People got hung up on that word. Well, it says be and not do. You know, the paragraph before it says to the extent that we do as we think he would have us. Sometimes we have to take action, right? For my example, it was something to do, discipline my daughter appropriately. And by the way, she was just in here a while ago, putting her head on my lap for a while. So she's 21 now. And it's all good. Um, so if we were going to do columns for it, and these sheets are all on our website. First column, what's my fear? Second column, drill down. Why do I have it? Keep drilling down till I'll be sad or I'll be uncomfortable. 
third column or dishonest thinking. Then fourth, we pray. We ask God to remove our fear. And then column, what action do I take? And sometimes it is to be, to just stay in the day. If I'm worried about someone dying, you know, I, nothing I can do about it. Um, what would God have me be? He would have me be present in the day, not future tripping. And then it tells us, um, then we do our sex inventory. So we go back over our past relationships. I would encourage anyone who's in a relationship. There is a wonderful, wonderful podcast. It's on a vision for you. It's from January 27th, 2019 by Gina R. Um, it's Gina and two other people, um, one of whom happens to be Melissa. So you get a bonus there. Um, she's the second speaker talking about doing a 10 step. Gina talks about um, a sex inventory and a sex ideal within a marriage. And it's not just about um, sex. It's about relationships. And it was phenomenal. I took pages of notes. Everyone I've sent to listen to it says, I took pages of notes. I listened to it multiple times. It's really good. So um, anyone who's in a relationship, it's a good thing to listen to. And it helps us to see our part where we haven't been the ideal partners. It tells us basically, um, we don't judge. So again, if we're sponsoring someone who's a different religion or has different values, we don't judge. I can't impose my values in the area of sex on anyone else. It's between the person and God. And, you know, so again, we review it. Where were we at fault? Where were we selfish? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, bitterness? And um, we also do a harms inventory, just a general harms. At this point, I asked my sponsees to just make a list who you hurt, what you did, how it hurt the person or the store, if you stole from a store, what you should have done instead. And then leave a blank column in step eight, then we'll go back and work on what the amends should be. But at this point, let's just get all the harms out. And the last thing we do is we shape a sex ideal, which is how God wants us to be in the area of sex. Um, again, I think it can be broader as well. Like, how does God want me to be in my marriage? Not just in the area of sex, but, you know, how does God want me to treat my husband? And it says, whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. Um, we must be willing to make amends where we've done harm, provided we don't bring about still more, more harm. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. Well, that's really instructive because it, now it's telling me how to treat any problem, right? Um, I find out what I think God would have me do. I must be willing to do it. If I cause any harm, I need to fix it. Like that's just, what a great way to go through life. Try and think what God would have me do to the best of my ability. Obviously, I'm going to make mistakes sometime. Um, but I think God gives partial credit. He knows our hearts. Um, we do as we think God would have us. We try not to cause any other harm. And if we're not sure what to do, in meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. On page 70, it says, 
what happens if we fall short of our ideal and stumble? Are we going to get drunk? Are we going to binge if we fall down on our sex ideal? And they say, it depends. So if we're sorry for what we've done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, right? I can't make myself a better person. I can only confess my defects, ask his forgiveness and let him change my heart. It says, we'll be forgiven and we'll have learned our lesson. If we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. So remember um, a couple of things. So first, we don't have to live with shame. If we've done something bad, it tells us what we do. We go to God, we're sorry, and we have the honest desire for him to change us. No shame needed. Um, but if we're not sorry and we harm others, and remember, they're saying sex is the same as any other problem. So if I go through my life harming others, it says we are quite sure to drink or for us eat compulsively again. Um, so just a kind of side point here. Sometimes if someone um, eats compulsively, they're told, oh, you just need to go back to your first step. But here they're telling us that if someone... Um, falls down on their sex ideal and they're not sorry and they keep harming others, they're going to drink. So let's say someone's cheating on her husband and then she eats compulsively as it pretty much promises she will. Um, the solution is not to go back to step one and read the doctor's opinion and start all over again. The solution is stop cheating on your husband. So they're telling us um, so I think for people who are sponsors, it's it's important to not just say, okay, you broke your abstinence, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's find out why you broke your abstinence. If there's an amend you weren't willing to make, boy, that person's gonna wanna go back to step one a hundred times and keep going back and get to nine and then binge and then have be told, oh, you gotta go back to one again. No, you have to make your amend. So here you have to, we have to live up to our ideals. And they say, again, if sex or again, anything is troublesome, if there's an area of our life that's troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. That is the key. If we're thinking too much about someone who isn't our spouse, perhaps, or too much about food or too much about why didn't I get that promotion? We throw ourselves the harder into helping others. And then it tells us the fruit of step four on the bottom of page 70. It says, um, okay, we've written down a lot. Now we understand how futile and fatal resentments are. And we've begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. Tolerance, we're able to put up with more. Patience. Everyone doesn't have to change on my schedule. And goodwill, live and let live. My life is good. God's got my back. I'm not binging anymore. Let other people invite who they want to their weddings, promote me or not promote me. It's all good. And then they tell us, last paragraph, in this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Remember, faith is a catalyst. It's currency in the spiritual world. 
they say, we hope you're convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. What a good God that is, right? I mean, I know like when my kids were little and they had their blocks and they made a mess, I would say, okay, you know, you made the mess, you clean it up. But God says, you made the mess and now it's too hard for you to clean up yourself. I'll remove it because it blocks you from me. God doesn't want us being blocked from him. God loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. So he's going to help us. All we have to do is admit it. And we'll see that next time in step five to him, to another human being, to ourselves. And that, um, and that he then removes our defects. And it says, okay, if you've done this, you've made a good beginning right? You now have, you know, a document you can, when the illness starts, you know, saying, oh, you really don't mean this. You're not serious about this program. You can hold up all these papers and say, yes, I am. See, I've done this. And it sends, says, if you've done this, you've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Not always fun. This, the fourth step is not the most fun step to do. Um, but look at the end result. God removes the self-will that has blocked us from him. So it is totally, totally worth it. And with that, I pass. Thanks.